So some of you, some of you that travel, you fly quite a bit. Uh, have you ever had like a really long layover, where you're catching a flight, waiting for the next flight leg to take off, and you're like stuck for hours in an airport somewhere? Okay, one of my longer layovers. This was about ten years ago. One of my longer layovers. I was in Berlin, Berlin, Germany, waiting for an outbound flight, and my layover was like 14 hours long. It's like seven in the morning till nine o'clock at night. And everything you do, what did you do in an airport for 14 hours? Ah, I didn't stay in the airport for 14 hours. I got a taxi. I went to downtown Berlin on a cold February day in order to explore the Pergamum Museum because that's just the kind of nerd I am. The Pergamum Museum. And I turned a corner in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin on this layover, and I saw this. That, my friends, is the Ishtar Gate from the 6th century BC that was unearthed, sent from Iraq to Berlin and reconstructed in the Pergamum Museum. 6th century BC, entrance to the city of Babylon the great. Now, an artist's rendition of this kind of shows the approach to that Ishtar gate. The Ishtar gate was not simply designed as a functional gate. It was designed to impress. It was designed to dazzle. As you came around the corner and this gate came into view, it was intended to elicit a wow factor. And today... There's another thing that is constructed in our story. It's not a gate. It happens to be a statue that was intended to dazzle. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, has constructed a 90-foot statue plated in gold. It wasn't solid gold. It'd probably be wood and then gold plating around. But I'm telling you, when he set this out on a plane, as the sun comes up and lands on this statue, it must have been dazzling. And then he commands his treasurers, his governors, his advisors, all of his administration from all of the different countries he had conquered at the same place, at the same time, to show up at the statue. And when the band began to play, they were all supposed to crash to their knees and worship the statue at the same time. What does this guy want? What is he after? The Babylonian Empire is strong, and it is fragile. He's conquered people after people after people. It's always the threat of an uprising, of a, of a revolt, of a coup attempt. I think that what Nebuchadnezzar is after is an event, a dazzling, unifying event to get all of his government at the same time to go, okay, we're all going to hit our knees at once. We're all in this together, right? It's not too problematic, and let's say you find yourself in Babylon, and you're originally from Israel. There's three young men there made part of the Babylonian government. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might not be familiar with those names. But when they moved up to Babylon to become part of the Babylonian government, they got new names. They got Babylonian names. And their new names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And the question these guys got to answer is to bow or not to bow. Now, this story, the story we're going to look at, it is long ago and it is far away. It is a different culture. It is a different time. It is a different place. But as we check out this story today, I'm telling you, it is a wonderful opportunity for us to have a conversation about being faithful when faithfulness costs you something. Some opportunities in life where we have the opportunity to be faithful, but baby, it could cost you something. It's, it's, this is an important conversation because so long we talk about the benefits of following God. The benefits of inviting Jesus into your life. And that, those are worthwhile conversations. Every once in a while, we need to talk about the cost. The possibility that someday your level of faithfulness, that it could cost you something. It could cost you dearly. So as we walk through the conversation today, it's really a conversation. Different time, different place, different culture, but it's a conversation about faithfulness when faithfulness could cost you something. The story unfolds in three scenes. Scene number one is the statue. Nebuchadnezzar, 90-foot statue. 90-foot statue plated with gold in this plain of Dura. Now, I'm, I'm going to read you part of the story. I don't want you to listen to the facts of the story. I want you to feel the flow of the story. I don't want you simply to see what is written. I want you to hear how it's written, the form of the story, how the story is put together. Parents of young children who read to them, I want you to hear this story. Ready? Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, and he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he has set up. So, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and they stood before it. Then a herald loudly proclaimed... Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image that king of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound, of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all other kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This remind you of anything? Parents of young children, did the, the cadence, the meter, the repetition, did it remind you of anything? Dr. Seuss, anyone? Any parent that goes like, it feels a little, the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe. It felt Seussian to me. Okay, this is my copy of Green Eggs and Ham. It has duct tape up the spine because we read this over and over 
and over and over again to our children. Would you like green eggs and ham? Would you like them in a house? Would you like them with a mouse? I do not like them in a house. I do not like them with a mouse. I do not like them here or there. I do not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am, yes, your pastor is comparing the Holy Scriptures to Dr. Seuss. This is what these have in common. This story in Daniel chapter 3 and Dr. Seuss are not written for the eye. They're written for the ear. They're not written to be seen. They're written to be heard. Uh, Why is Daniel 3 written? And then the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, judges, officials, and then repeated, and then repeated. The horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, repeated, repeated, and repeated again. It's because this was a story crafted in a way to be told and retold and told again. It was a story to be heard. It was a story to be learned. It was a story to be memorized. This is a story that parents tell their children and those children tell their children and those children tell their children so that there would something that would be Velcroed to your soul that sometimes faithfulness will cost you something. This is a story that was to move from one generation to the next, and the very construction of the story made for phenomenal storytelling in a way that it would be heard, that it would be memorized, that it would be known. This was a story that was to travel intergenerationally, that sometimes faithfulness would be costly faithfulness, sometimes faithfulness would cost you something. Now, Chris and I, uh, we started dating. I I was 17 when we went out the first time. We started dating our senior year in high school in Sacramento, California. And then we're 18, we relocated uh, to Grand Rapids as a dating couple. We both enrolled in the same small Bible college here in Grand Rapids. Um, And the president of our Bible college, his name was John Miles. And he was not only the president of our college, he taught our freshman doctrine class. So here I am, you know, 18 years old, sitting in this freshman doctrine class. And there's a story that John Miles told that I have not forgotten. It was a story about his dad. And as, as I, it's been a while, as I recall the elements of the story, John Miles' father was a pastor and became a pastor in this town. And then he learned that the former pastor had left town without paying his debts. Now, in our day, you know, you use a credit card, you, you don't pay off your credit card, you might be in trouble with a credit card company. Back in the day before credit cards, you would run up a tab with the grocery store and with the hardware store, and I don't know, maybe with a clothing store, maybe with a butcher shop, and if you left town without paying those debts, this was very personal, and people knew, and people talked. So when John Miles' dad goes to this town, starts to become pastor of this church, he figured out really, really quick that the reputation of this church had been trashed because of what that pastor had done. And on a very limited, meager salary, he took his own money and went from business to business to business to pay off the former pastor's debts because he knew 
that there was no way he was going to have effective ministry in that town with the reputation of that church. I heard that story when I was 18 years old. And it stuck. And the reason it stuck was it was just this overarching idea. Sometimes faithfulness will cost you something. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's time, sometimes it's attention. But sometimes being faithful has a price tag. Now, in some respects, that story is extraordinary. And in other respects, that story should be absolutely normal. What should make that story normal is that we're drawn in to a story. That Jesus comes and Jesus dies to pay off our debts. <laughs> you get that, right? That when Jesus dies on the cross, he's, not, he's dying to pay off debts that weren't his. He's dying to pay off debts that were ours. And this is why we get to pray, forgive us our debts. It's extraordinary, but in another sense, when the DNA of Jesus gets attached to you, we follow the Lord who paid a great price for us. And often, we will be called to a costly faithfulness. Part one of the story, the statue, <laughs> scene two of the story, just the decision. You got three guys standing there, and they weren't raised in Babylon. They were raised in Israel. They're carted off to Babylon as teenagers. I don't know how old they are now, but these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, formerly named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I think they're standing there, and they're going like, are you going to bow? I'm not going to bow. Are you going to bow? By the way, this is always easier if you're in a group. I'm telling you, it's harder if you're there all alone. But they go, yeah, I'm not bowing. I'm not bowing. I'm not bowing. And word, word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar. Some advisors come before Nebuchadnezzar, and they begin, of course, with diplomacy and flattery. May the king live forever. That's a good way to start. They said, did you not command that when people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, that they should bow to the ground before the statue, and that if they don't, they should be immediately thrown into the blazing fire? Well, there are three Jews who are part of your administration, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are ignoring you. They refuse to worship your gods, and they refuse to bow down to the statue you have made. This is the point where Nebuchadnezzar just goes, yeah, well, those Jews, they can be like that, and they got their own regulations and laws, and they're doing a good job in the government, so we're going to give them a pass on this one. <laughs> Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you will not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have made. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all the other music, 
If you bow down and worship the statue, okay, good. If you don't, I will throw you immediately into that blazing furnace. And verse 15 has a little bit of tidbit. He says, uh, then what God will rescue you from my hand? I think the rest of the story is going to answer that question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, these guys, dude, it's decision time. Hananiah, Mishael, Azra, it's decision time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if he doesn't rescue us, you need to know we're not falling on our knees in front of that statue and we won't worship your gods. Okay, why? What caused these three young men to go, not okay, not okay? What was driving them? I think it was the very basis of the agreement that their people had with their creator. We would call it a covenant, but it's this binding agreement. Uh, found in the Ten Commandments. You're probably familiar with at least some of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you, you, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you should not commit adultery, don't bear false witness in court against your neighbor, honor your mom and dad. But, but commandment number one in the Ten Commandments was this. No other gods. No, 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 no. No other. I, I want to, the creator was saying, I want to be your one and only God. <laughs> I don't want you worshiping the gods of Egypt. I don't want you worshiping the gods, the idols of Canaan. I, and in the future, the idols of Babylon. I want to be your one and only God. No other gods. Ah, so the Jews didn't worship other idols. Yes, they did constantly and from generation to generation. And it was their downfall. When Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are standing there going, you can throw us into the fire, but we are not bowing down to that statue and we will not worship your gods, understand that they are doing something different from what their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers had done. Part of the set of promises Israel had received was when something like this, if you drag me through the mud for long enough, don't think I'm going to protect you. And they had, and God hadn't protected them. The reason they are in Babylon is because of the collapse of their country. And they're going like, yeah, we're not going back to that. We know where that road leads. It's what caused this exile to begin with. We're not going back there. No, you can throw us in the flames, but we're, we're, not, we're not worshiping your gods and we're not bowing down to your statue. No other gods, no other gods, no other gods. Now, there's some respect, which is much harder for them than us. I mean, you do have the whole furnace thing. But I think there's some respects where this is harder for us than it was for them. And the reason I think this might be harder for us than it was for them is that they at least knew when they were bowing down to an idol and worshiping it. And I think we're largely unaware of when we have an idol in our life that we've allowed kind of to take the place of God, kind of like a, a counterfeit God. And so for us, 
I think it's much harder to know when we have an idle thing going on in our lives. Now, um, I, listen, I'm, I'm tempted to say, is there an idol in your life? I think it's a terrible question. I think a much better question is, are you able to identify what two or three idols at any given time are competing for attention with God? I just assume that we, my, my friends, the heart is an idol factory. So uh, there, there's a, a, a book I found really, really helpful. It's called Counterfeit Gods. I've referenced this before. The author is a pastor, Tim Keller. The subtitle, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. I've referenced this book a bunch of times, and I hate it. I hate it. I hate it for the way it exposes me as I read it. Because Keller's definition of an idol is this. An idol is anything you look at. And in your heart of hearts, you go, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. And the that can be anything. It can be a position. It can be a title. It can be a person. It can be an object. But just this sense, if I only had that, then my life would have meaning. Then I would have value. Then I would feel significant and secure. In fact, if I don't have that, I just don't think life is worth living. Then we have identified an idol. So uh, you talk about our idolatries. Uh, I just have a list here. This is not a thorough list, but kind of some of the usual suspects. Uh, position. And by position, I mean anything from making partner in a law firm to being a starter on a volleyball team or a basketball team. It gives me a big man. If I am riding the bench, I have no value. If I'm a starter, then I do have value. Like a position can almost be a form of the rival's God. Uh, enough money, status, family. Man, you parents, you just got to remember, this child is a gift from God. This child didn't come to replace God. You know, we all have kind of emptiness in our lives. If we try to use that child to rescue us, somebody else came as our savior and rescuer. And it isn't junior. Child is a gift from God on loan not a replacement for God. And then just travel and recreation. Man, if I can't travel, have new experiences, recreation, I don't know if, if life is worth living. So let me ask you a question. Just as you look over that short list, and it's not a thorough list, can you sitting here right now identify what some of your God replacements might be? Okay, I'll go first. In fact, I'll give you three of mine, three counterfeit gods that I can identify that attempt in my heart to rival the real God. Number one, success. The success God. If I am successful, if I attach myself to something successful, then I have value. Listen, as a lot of you know, Chris and I, in the early days of Ada Bible Church, we worked here for seven years before the attendance got up to 100 people on a weekly basis. But then it took off. I'm telling you something. When you attach yourself to something that feels successful, you can feel, I now have 
value. I get my value because I'm attached to a successful enterprise. <laughs> my friends, success is a hungry beast and it just devours. If you are insecure, you will never feel quite successful enough. Success is a disappointing God and can be a destructive God. So that would be one that rivals for my attention. Okay, now it's your turn. Okay, I'll go again. Second counterfeit God that rivals God for my attention. Money. Easy money. My father was a pastor. Really small congregations. Growing up, there was always just barely enough. Now, there's another way to word that. And the other way to word that is this. God always seemed to provide exactly what we needed when we needed it. But the flip side of that, there was always just barely enough. And Chris and I, we're savers, man. We are savers. We have an emergency fund, which means when something breaks or blows up, it doesn't send us into a tailspin of, oh, no, oh, no. It's just we can tap the emergency fund. Our emergency fund can easily become our security. Are you secure in life? Yes. Why? Well, we got, we've got that fund and we've got that fund. But how about our creator who said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? And a savings account can be like a substitute God that we turn to for ultimate security in life. Now, a savings account is a good thing. What an idol worship does is it takes a good thing and turns it into the ultimate thing. I take something good and I turn it into God. Your turn. Okay, I'll go again. Number three. Number three. So success, money. Number three, uh, reputation. Because I'm aware of something. Baby, it takes years to build a reputation. As someone who can be counted on, someone who is consistent, someone who is faithful, someone who is hardworking, reputation. It takes years to build a reputation. Doesn't take years to lose one. You can lose your reputation over doing something stupid during one weekend. It takes years to build. It doesn't take years to lose. You can lose a reputation because of an accusation that you've done something stupid. And there can be this thing, if I don't have my reputation, I don't have anything. And maybe my Lord whispers, well, then what am I? What if you could lose your reputation and have me and you still have everything? And so success, money, reputation, good things that we try to turn into the ultimate things. Now, here's the crazy. I could have continued that list. I don't think it's just three. I think at any given time, the emptiness of the heart is so strong that we just try to fill it with a person, with an experience, with a title, with something that rivals, that rivals God. And it takes, my friends, it takes an incredible amount of insight and then honesty just to be able to say, that's a counterfeit God. And to be able to look at something and say, you will disappoint me. You'll be disappointing or maybe destructive. And it's just those three words, no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. Can you say it with me? Whisper it with me. Ready? No other gods.
one more time. No other gods. It is the voice of your heavenly Father whispering, I want to be your one and only God. Receive these other things as gifts when they happen along, but don't turn them into the ultimate source of meaning, value, significance, and security. They will fail you. They are fickle. They come and go. No other gods, no other gods. Now, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's like into the fire you go. And just, just speaking personally, if I were allowed to choose my means of death, burning alive would not make my short list. Then Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, part three, the furnace. Scene three, the furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated like seven times hotter than usual. And then he commanded some of his strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. And they do it. And read, this furnace is so hot that when these strong soldiers come up to toss them in, they die just because of the heat and just because of the fumes. The end. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, 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 I see, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar comes up to the door of the furnace and says, Shadrach, Meshach, Bednego, come, come here, come out, come here. And they come out. And then this, the stage gets really crowded. It's like Nebuchadnezzar, these three guys. And then it's like, the, you know, the advisors and the judges and the governors and the treasurers, they're surrounding. And you read, no 3D reburns. Uh, their, their clothing wasn't singed, their, their hair wasn't scorched, and they don't even smell like fire. I mean, it's like not even a sunburn. Does this sound strange to you? I mean, just, I mean, look at me. It just, like, does this not sound a little unusual to you? It's like there's got to be more than a handful of you going, really? Really? I mean, this is, if this happened, this is what you would call a grade A miracle. This is not like, I lost my car keys, I prayed for my car keys, I found my car keys. It's a miracle. This is different. I couldn't find a parking place. I prayed for a parking place. I found a parking place. It's a miracle. This is different. This is, this is way different. And uh, I think this happened. I, I believe this happened. I, I, I believe that the creator is unlimited in creative power. And often, often our God chooses to work through the natural and through the normal, but is not limited to the natural and normal. And if, when, and where he chooses can shift over into the supernatural and the paranormal, on occasions, if, and when, and where he chooses. And I think this is one of those. By the way, it is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that ends up getting the credit here. 
verse 28, our landing spot, and Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Uh, they trusted in him and defied the king's command and were, this is critical, willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. It's a good story. But it would also be a good story if they had baked. My friends, it would still be a good story if God had not rescued them from the flames. If they had said, we're not going to, no, we're not, we're not going to worship other gods. We're not going to bow down. We know where that road leads. We know the destruction it has brought. Not going to happen. You can cook us, but it's not going to happen. And if they had died in the flames, it still would have been a good story. That's what they said. Two of the most critical words in this whole story are the words, even if. Even if, take us back to like verse 18, where they said, this God of ours, he is able to rescue us, and we believe he will rescue us, but what? Two words. Even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't, you need to know we're not bowing down to that statue and we're not worshiping your God. Two of the most powerful words in your life are the words, even if. I'm telling you, some of you are going to enter a season in life where you're going to have to go, God, help us to trust you even if the cancer comes back. Dear Lord, help us to trust you and to follow faithfully even if. He's unwilling to see a counselor and sort this out. She's unwilling to see a counselor and sort this out. Lord, help me to trust you even if this whole thing falls apart. Help us to trust you even if our daughter continues to drift. Our son continues to drift. Your parents continue to drift. Even if, even if. Well, God will rescue you. He might. Help me to trust you even if a financial downturn becomes a full-on recession. And a recession becomes a full-blown depression. Help me to trust you even if, even if, even if. Two of the most powerful words in this chapter. We believe he can rescue us and we think he will, but even if he doesn't, we will continue to follow and be faithful. But anticipate, my friends, anticipate that God will meet you in the furnace. Anticipate that his supernatural joy might meet you in a vocational storm Anticipate that he will meet you in your furnace. Anticipate that he will meet you as you attempt to rebuild trust with your family. Anticipate that he will meet you in your furnace. Anticipate that his peace, supernatural peace, can meet you when your heart is just broken. Anticipate that he will meet you in the furnace. Anticipate that he can provide a supernatural contentment as you sit down and have to figure out brand new financial habits to meet a new financial reality, a supernatural contentment. Anticipate that he will meet you 
in the furnace. God met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their furnace. Expect, anticipate that he will meet you in your And so, gracious God, once again, we just say thanks. We say thank you, thank you, that we were able to gather and open your word and let it speak to us. And give us strength, give us courage, and give us wisdom. Please continue to transform us into the people that you created us to be. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who came taught, healed, and gave his life as a costly sacrifice for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Man, we'll see you next week.